Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. Thanks, Ben. We're going to read the Bible now, and we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 in this three-week series. And today I'm going to be reading from 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1 to 5. If you don't have a Bible there, it's going to be on the screen behind us. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial... Their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. Good morning, everyone. My name's Ross, if we haven't met. It is exciting to be doing church together with the kids uh, learning about Jesus as well. They're going through some great stuff through the Gospel of Mark and just, um, yeah, finding out what it means to be followers of Jesus as we are in here. I'm going to pray, and I loved Ben's prayer earlier, so I'm just going to echo some of that prayer for us in our, for the next half an hour or so as we dig a bit deeper into God's Word. Please pray with me. Dear Father God, we pray that you would fill us and refresh us with your grace that you would reveal yourself to us as we meet here together, but also reveal our hearts, that you would reveal us so we can understand why we need you, why we need to cling to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're doing a three-week series on generosity. And I'm not sure how you're feeling about that. Are you feeling comfortable or uncomfortable? Because generosity, or talking about money for a few weeks, can fill us with lots of apprehension and lots of concern and lots of discomfort. And for good reason, because for most of us, I think, particularly in churches, that we've been, uh, had a few scars from a series like this or talk like this or when money is referred to, that we've been burned before, that we've either been made felt guilty, that we're made to be maybe left with the feeling that we've been used, or even that they only want me just for my money, that, with that attitude. So there's lots of reasons to be apprehensive, lots of reasons to be uncomfortable. So we're going to sort out some ground rules right from the get-go. Uh, I'm going to uh, make a commitment to you guys in the next three, three weeks, and Ben's preaching next week, that we're not going to be talking about budgets at all. We're not going to be talking about big visions and how we need to uh, expand our budgets or anything like that. That I'm not going to pressure you to be actually giving more in dollars and cents. We're actually not going to be talking budget stuff as we've done uh, sometimes in the past. But we do need to correct some things here at Southside because in a sense, I feel a bit uncomfortable about talking about money. And I think that's impacted the culture of our church, that I think for many of us that we feel uncomfortable with talking about money. It's been over 10 years since we've done a series on generosity, if that reflects our emphasis and our culture about talking about money. 
we often push it to a side. So I've contributed to that. But money is a part of the world we live, and Jesus was comfortable about talking about money. He was brought up in conversations all the time because the reality is money is how our world works in a sense. So we make money, we need money, we use money just to live, survive. Every day we're impacted by the way we use our money. So it was important for Jesus to put money into perspective for his listeners, for his one-on-one conversations and it's good for us too. How do we view our money? Jesus was okay for it. It was actually good for him to talk to people about the perspective of money, and it's good for us too. It's healthy for us. So I've made a commitment to you. I'm not going to talk budgets and put the squeeze on or anything like that, but I want us to agree on some other ground rules too, that we're not going to hide behind things. We're not going to be hide behind denial. Oh, he's not talking about me. I haven't got a problem with money. He's talking about everybody else, particularly those rich people. That's who he's talking to. And we excuse ourselves. We're not going to excuse ourselves. We're all going to be in this room talking about it together. We're also not going to be hide behind some sayings like, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, which justifies secrecy. Yes, Jesus talked about things like that, but he was talking about the Pharisees in his day, the religious people who would roll up their $100 bills and flick them around, look how much money I'm giving and throw it in front of everybody. Look how great I am, look how grand I am. And they'd puff themselves up with pride and self-righteousness. To that, he was saying, no, 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 that's not what it's about. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand doing. I don't think our pride in generosity is our problem here at Southside. If anything, we've come the other way and we cling on to secrecy. No one should know about our giving or my giving. We're not going to hide behind that. We're also not going to protect our idols because that's what money can be. It can be an idol. Money is our sacred thing. It gives us our security, our identity that it's, it's a reflection of our achievements. It's my money. Don't touch it. Don't think about it. Don't even talk about it. It becomes an idol for us. We're not going to protect our idols. Lay them out on the table. Let's talk about it. See, there's lots of reasons to feel uncomfortable. Are you uncomfortable yet? I'm feeling uncomfortable. Uh, we're uncomfortable about talking about money generally as Christians in our culture, Uh, In Australia, we don't talk about our wages or how much we get. It's usually very secretive. It's not public. So in church, it's very hard for us to actually go, this is a part of who we are. We live in a world that deals with money. But we also live for Jesus. And how does that impact how we view or handle things like money? See, some people are very uncomfortable. Some people are very comfortable talking about money. Actually, some churches are very comfortable about talking about money. And we're going to meet one this morning. We had it read for us in our Bible reading. They were very comfortable. It's only five verses we're looking at this morning. And you might have picked up some of the ways they're described. So even in things going bad in their life with trials and poverty, they're rich in generosity, with overflowing joy. Paul says, I testify that they were able to give not just 
what they were able to give, but beyond their ability, they were generous. And even then, after they gave, they were begging us to contribute, urgently pleading with us. He said, it's a privilege for us to be giving money to you. They seemed to be very comfortable with talking about generosity, showing how much they're giving. It was quite public, because Paul's telling everybody. They seemed to be very comfortable. Now, there's a few things going on here to actually understand what Paul is describing with these churches in Macedonia. So let me just introduce you to a few key cities. This is in the book of 2 Corinthians. So this is the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to the Corinthian church. Uh, it's his second letter, that's why it's called 2 Corinthians. Uh, so that's Corinth on the map. It's a key place he's writing to encourage them. Where he's writing from is Macedonia. Now, Macedonia is not one town or city. It's an area that encompasses a whole bunch of cities. So it might be familiar if the New Testament, uh, there's letters to the Thessalonians. So you see there, it's, it's in print. Thessalonica is an actual city. And um, Philippians, Phil Philippi, is an actual city in Macedonia. It's an area. It's not just one church. There's a few churches in that area. They believe, the scholars believe, Paul is writing this letter from Philippi. He's in Macedonia, writing to the Corinthian church. Now, the Corinthian church is like, it's in Roman status, because this is the first century Roman Empire. Corinth had a lot of status. It was a trading city, a key port and trading area, business area for the Roman Empire. So they were middle to upper class people. They were well off and they, they, they knew it. Macedonia, they're like the country cousins, the poor cousins. They're up there, up north, important cities, but, you know, they haven't got the status of Corinth. There's a third uh, place that's important here, and that's uh, referred to as Judea, where, again, Judea is an area, but we know it, that's where Jerusalem is. Jesus is old hangout down in Judea, down that area. Now, the setting here is... There's a problem in Judea, there's poverty. So the church in Jerusalem is really struggling and apparently really, really struggling to the point where they're not able to provide food for themselves, uh, for the individuals in the church. So the Apostle Paul, in his travels around the country in setting up churches, so he planted Corinth, a church in Corinth. He planted a church in Philippi. He planted a church in Thessalonica. He's been to these places. Now he's going back and he's passing the hat around and saying, hey, can we have a collection for our brothers and sisters back in Jerusalem, back in Judea? So that's what this collection that he's talking about is all about. Now, Paul's going, these Macedonian churches... They're like, wow, when it comes to this collection. They're super generous. But he's writing to tell the Corinthian church. It's like, hey, the poor brothers, the country brothers, they're doing it tough, but they're being generous. How about you, Corinthians? So he's teaching them as a message of encouragement. So with that in the background, we can see now when he says, our brothers, he's writing to the church in Corinth. Now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a severe trial, we're not sure exactly what he's talking about, but we do know when Paul went through Philippi, he really shook, shook up the town. He did things like uh, healed a demonic uh, woman who was giving uh, prophecies that were helping um, some business people make money. She was basically their slave, uh, telling people about what was going to happen in the future. He healed her from the demonic, the, from the demon. 
but then the boss lost his income, so he got all upset. And lots of people were being upset because they weren't selling their idols or the temple, temple worship had dropped because now they're finding out about Jesus. It caused riots in that town and Paul was chased out of that town. Whether these um, trials are, are to do with that, that there's this big push against Christianity, we're not exactly sure, but we know for sure that they've got that history. Yeah, trials. But even when trials, they've got overflowing joy. Time of poverty, now poverty could be cause of the persecution from the town. You know, if you're a Christian, we're not going to employ you, we're not going to help you out with money or food. Could be like that. It could be that the, the drought and famine from Jerusalem has come across that area as well. We're not sure, but even in the, their poverty, they're still rich in generosity. Now, what would it like, be like to be there? When trials push down on us, when poverty squeezes us, what do we do? We usually pull in tighter. How much money have I got? I've got to watch my spending. I've got to watch my budget. I've got to restrict things. I've got to look after me and my future. But what are these guys doing? They said, no, they're welled up in rich generosity. They're not just being generous, it's rich generosity. How's that for a description? And they're overflowing joy. They're not begrudgingly, oh, if I really have to. Oh, no, let us contribute. That's what he goes on to say in verse 3. I testify, this is Paul writing, I testify that they gave as much as they were able. The poor country cousins in poverty, in persecution. But they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. He says they did it entirely on their own. Paul didn't go there putting a squeeze on them with some grand big vision or grand um, the, the, the selling the vision of changing the church in Jerusalem. It was just like help our, our, our brothers and sisters over there. So entirely on their own, willingly, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. It's a privilege to give money. I think what Paul's describing here is we turned up to these churches and they are being generous. They are giving what they're able to. In their local churches, if they'd continued on the Jewish tradition, which was the Old Testament tradition of tithing, that's giving 10% of your income to the work of the Lord. So it sounds like they're giving what they're able to that, to their local church. Paul turns up and he's passing the hat around and he's saying to them, hey, we want to help out this other church over here, Jerusalem. Can you, can you give us anything? But we know you're under persecution, you're in poverty. He's expecting people to throw the odd tenner or 20 bucks in and, and you know, just be thankful because they're doing it tough. But he says, no. They begged us. No, let us give more. It's a privilege for us to be serving in this way, to be using our money this way, to be helping our brothers and sisters. It's a privilege and an honour and urgently pleading. Let's give more. We've already given our tithe. Let's give more to this special collection, an extra. Now, it's amazing, isn't it, that they're so comfortable not just talking about money, but joyfully being generous and giving it away to help others, that they would do that. It's huge what is going on here. But Paul snuck in this little thing, because this is not a story about money. He's not just saying to the Corinthian church, actually, this is how to have rich generosity. Do what they do. There's a little bit of that, 
but he's also showing a hint about what the generosity means. I don't know whether you noticed that very first verse. So this is Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. He says, Now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Wouldn't you expect Paul to say, Now, brothers and sisters in Corinth, we want you to know about the generosity of the Macedonian churches. It's all about money. It's all about being generous. He doesn't say that. His opening verse is, no, I want to tell you about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. There's something more going on here. There's something bigger than money. It's God's grace at work. It's a little bit like, you know, when you sometimes when you watch a movie and you start off with this amazing action scene or scene that goes, wow, what happened there? That was just incredible. And then you realise they've actually landed the, the, the opening scene in the middle of the storyline. You have to backtrack to find out all the significant things that led to this amazing action point. It's like this. This is the re- result of something amazing that's happened, but we need to backtrack a little bit to find out exactly what, what made the Macedonians do what they did with their rich generosity. And for this, we're going to spend a little bit of time in another letter in 1 Corinthians, Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, just to find out what was Paul teaching? What was he showing these churches? Because this is part of Paul's message when he goes around to all the churches. And this sets up the rich generosity. He goes on, so 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's a long chapter, I'm just going to give you a few of the highlights, but I encourage you to read it at some point. Paul says, For what I received, I passed on to you first of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that jesus died it's a historical go in a few moments we'll see he goes into lots of detail how it's a historical fact in the first century in the roman empire in a particular point in time in a particular point in history at a particular place in jerusalem jesus god's son the christ came to die not just die because he was unpopular not just die because well, we've all got to die sometime. No, he died for our sins. He says the scriptures explain that. The scriptures say that, that we all are condemned to death because of our sin. Our sin is what keeps us from God. Our sin is our rebellion from God. Our sin is our attitude to God in not having him rule our life, that we want to do our own thing. That's sin. And if you reject God, he's going to reject you. It says, I'm going to punish you for that. And the penalty, penalty for sin is death. But what Paul's saying here, first importance, Christ, God's Son, Jesus, came and died for our sins. You know how significant that is? How significant is that moment where Jesus hung on the cross? We have this picture, I love the graphic we're using for this series of hands being put out. Um, Our very own Emily put this together for us and I love the picture itself, but actually When you look at this picture of love and generosity with hands, I'm giving this to you, of rich generosity. It's actually Jesus showed this rich generosity, this rich love to us, not with his hands like this, but his hands like this. This is where it all starts. Jesus hanging on a cross, not just dying because he was a rebel for his own punishment for his own sin, he was perfect dying on the cross for our sins 
for our sins, to restore us to God. Paul says you've got to start there. Jesus died, historical fact, for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried. Yes, he was really dead and there was witnesses. They carried him into a tomb, put the rock in front of the tomb, but that he was raised on the third day, according to Scriptures. Again, he's saying, you know, God explains this. Even before this happened, God was saying God's loved one who was going to restore the world was not going to remain dead. He was going to rise from the grave. He was going to conquer death. And the scriptures say, this is what Jesus has done. He's not only died for your sin, but because he's defeated death, because he's risen to life, so you too, when you believe in him, when you trust in him, when he takes your sin, you too will rise to life. He's truly Lord. He's truly conquered sin. And we're truly assured of when we trust in him, we will have life too. Paul says, historical fact really did happen he starts listing a name names then from verse 5 he appeared to Cephas he appeared to 500 more people he appeared to the 12 appeared to James he appeared to all these people he says I'm not making this up and when he's writing he's writing this about around about 20 years after Jesus had died and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven it's about 20 years after so Paul's listing these names going if you doubt that he really did rise from the grave, go and talk to these people. Most of them are still alive today. Have a chat. They saw him. They saw his scars. They saw the resurrected Jesus. He really did rise. And we really can trust in that for our life. But Paul says this is just not just an, a moment in time in history. It's an act of grace because it changes us. It changes who we are. And Paul talks about his own story. He says... Jesus also appeared to me as one abnormally born. So what he means by that is he didn't just grow up and, and started following Jesus and his teaching like all the other disciples. No, he persecuted the church. He persecuted believers. He was actually going from town to town. He was on his way to Damascus intentionally to throw people in jail. The story of Acts tells us the story of actually what happened. He was on the road because he despised Jesus so much that Jesus appeared to him in a vision, not a dream, because dreams can be somehow, you know, is that real or not? No, it was a vision that actually left him blind that he needed healing for. So it was a real physical thing that he saw Jesus, the risen Jesus, and Jesus calling him to stop persecuting the church and to follow him. And he says, he uses these words, I'm the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called apostles because I persecuted the church. Can you imagine being somebody who hated Jesus, the Son of God, the Lord, so much that you are actively speaking against him, make it hard for everybody else, that Jesus would appear to you and go, you know what, I know what you've done. I know where you've come from. I know where your heart is but I'm calling you to follow me. Paul says that's an act of grace. He says, verse 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. He says, I didn't change me. I didn't choose this as a different way of life. By grace, God has taken me from an outsider and made me an insider, from a hater to a lover, from a persecutor to a preacher. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And by his grace to me, uh, his grace to me was not without effect. It impacted me. It changed my life. 
the grace that God shows, the love that he shows to us by sending his son Jesus to hang on a cross, it changes us. Sinners rejected, brought into the family as loving sons and daughters. He says, this is what's about. It's grace seen through the cross. And this changes us. It's not only what Jesus saves us from sin and death, and ending up in hell, but he saves us to something. Because he goes on, down the chapter in verse 51, he says, Listen, I tell you a mystery. We'll not all sleep, but we'll all be changed in the flesh, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we will be changed. What he's talking about there is when Jesus returns. So in the Roman Empire, first century, when a king comes into town, the trumpets are sounded. So no matter what you're doing, you come out of your shops, you come out of your houses, you line the streets, because the king is coming. But Paul says, this will be the last trumpets. Trumpets because the real king, King Jesus, has come to enter the world again. The risen Jesus and it's the last trumpet because this is the last time he's going to come and as a visitor, but he's going to come to take us home. He's entered the world that is the perishable, the world that is doomed to death. Like we don't live forever. We are perishable. We deteriorate. We will end up in death at some point, physically. But when Jesus comes, for those who have already died, will be raised to life imperishable. If we're still alive, when Jesus returns, we'll come out to meet him and he's going to take those who believe in him home. When Jesus comes, he's not only saved us from sin and death and hell, but he saved us to life and eternity in heaven with him. Verse 54, he goes on saying, uh, the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. No more death. Jesus has conquered that. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. On that day when Jesus returns, and some of us, if not all of us, might have died by then, depends when he comes back. Some of us might be closer to that than others. I get that here. But we see that we have this assurance of victory. Whether we've died physically he's going to raise us to life to immortality whether we're living he's we don't have to fear death we don't have to fear that he's going to take us to victory victory over death take us into eternity into heaven i mean that's something to get excited about isn't it that we don't have to worry about the burdens of this world the the load that this world puts on the expectations that this world puts on us because jesus is going to take us home to a much better place he saved us from something, he saved us to something, into his kingdom. No more tears, no more worries. Perfect unity and fellowship with our brothers and sisters gathered around our God and King and Lord Jesus Christ. That's a day. You want to be there on that day. You want to be trusting your life with Jesus. You want to be putting your sin onto him on the cross where he took that away from you so you can have life. Not just to enjoy him now, but to enjoy him for eternity. We want to be there in that day. I know you're smiling under those masks. And I know under your breath, you're going, yeah. I long for that day. It's going to be so good.
So what are we going to do about this? He saved us from our sin through grace. Nothing that we've done. In fact, everything that we've done that's pushed us away from him, he's forgiven us. No matter where we've come from, no matter what we've done, we're drawn to him. Paul says that's irresistible grace. Paul says he saved us to a better kingdom when he comes. That's irresistible future. I want to be there. How's that going to change things? Paul finishes off this chapter with this one last verse. Therefore, he says, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Don't move. Cling tightly to it, is the image. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. It's like, are we, we're just going to have that in our resume? Oh yeah, one day I hope to do this, I hope to get to heaven. No, no. Give yourselves fully to this. Live for this. To live for the cross, living under his grace, live for eternity. Because you know that your labour is not, your labour in the Lord is not in vain. You're not wasting your time. Remember, historical fact, Jesus lived, died, rose again. Fact that he took our sin on the cross when we trust in him and believe in him. Don't let that go. Hold firm. Hold firm wholeheartedly. Jump in, feet and all. Don't do this half-hearted. But stand firm. Don't let go. This is what we live for when it says, give yourself fully to the Lord. That our goals are no longer our work goals, our house goals. It's our goal is to be there on that day when Jesus returns with the assurance that he's going to take us home. The idea that we go to work. Our work is something we want to do and we want to do diligently in this world, but we don't work for a better retirement or a better future here in this world. We work knowing that there's something much better. God's got a much better retirement planned for us. This is why we work hard in our marriages. We want our spouses, our husbands and wives to be there on that day with us. We want to raise our kids in this message of grace and the cross because we want our kids to be there with us on that day. That's why we build each other up in church, our church family, because we want all of us to be there on that day, living under grace, living for eternity. We want that for our friends. We want that for our families. We want that for our neighbours. We want that for our community to be there on that day. It changes our perspective, doesn't it? That's why we, he talks about give your life fully to the Lord. This is worth living for. It's significant. Everything else you can have a loose grip on because it's all going to perish. It's all going to fade away. But keep a tight grip on the message of grace and the cross and the idea that Jesus is coming back certainty that he's coming back for us to take us home now i know it's one thing for us to to sit in church here and go yeah i'm in i believe it i want to do it i'm going to believe it it's easy for us sitting in church it's a very different thing for us to put this in practice isn't it what does this look like when we leave here when we do go to work when we do hit the grind of the week when we are uh in persecution maybe when we are in trials, when we are in poverty. How do we put that into practice, being all in for God to give your life fully? What does it look like to give yourself uh, to the Lord? See, this is the picture of the Macedonians. We're up to speed now. We get this scene. There's something bigger going on here where he says, now, brothers and sisters, 
We want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian church. This makes sense now, right? They've been transformed by Jesus. They're living for a better kingdom. In the midst of a severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. They're not saying, life is tough, poor me, I'm going to pull in my money, I'm going to pull in my resources, I'm going to look after me. No, not if they're living under the grace of God where God's given them so much, that God's given them stuff that they, they couldn't get for themselves. They said, I'm going to live for that. What can take that away? It's God's grace, his gift to me. I'm certain of eternity. I'm certain of the new kingdom. I'm going to cling tight to that. I'm going to cling loose to things like generosity. I'm going to cling loose, as in giving your money away. I'm going to cling loose to, to thinking that this world is all there is. That's when poverty and trials catch up with us. No, no, I'm living for a better kingdom. I can be rich in generosity and overflowing in joy because I'm living for something better. Verse 3 says, For I testify they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded for us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. Why be joyful? Why be begging? Why be pleading? Can we give more money? Because they're living for something much better. They're using their money to encourage others, to build up their others. Money's not the thing anymore. It's their security in Christ. And the money is something they use to build up others. But this is a verse um, we missed out before, verse 5, because this pulls it all together. Paul says, And they exceeded our expectations. If we stopped the sentence there, we'd go, Oh, he's talking about money. We were expected them to throw in a 10 or a 20, but no, no, they gave way more than that. Is he talking about money? No, he says, they gave themselves first to the Lord. So they were all in. They had a big vision of Jesus on the cross, a big vision of grace, a big vision of Jesus' return, a big vision of the new kingdom. We're clinging tight to that. We're going to give ourselves to this vision, the vision of the gospel, and we're going to cling loosely to everything else. They gave themselves first to the Lord. Lord, we're trusting you in this. And if I'm going to cling tight to that, I'm going to cling loosely to my money. So they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us, by the will of God, to us also. <clears throat> this changes. There's a story behind this, isn't it? It's not just about money. It's way bigger, way bigger than money. So where does money fit into all this where does money fit in i just want to give you three observations from what was going on here that i i found really helpful working on it this week really challenging first one is when you give yourself to god giving money is not such a big deal it's because i'm all in if you go this kingdom is better if god's grace is something worth clinging on to I'm going to cling hard on that and lose everything else. And now you're asking me about money? Well, I'm all in. I said I'm all in. I'm not saying money's different. It's a bit like when Kim and I got married many, many years ago. 
Uh, Kim had a few bucks in the bank. I was broke as anything. But I come to the party with two cars. That was special, hey? I think one was worth about $200 and the other one, two grand. But I come to the party with two cars. I love my cars. I used to be a mechanic. And if I said to Kim, okay, I'm committing myself, my all self, for better for worse, richer or poorer, I'm in this marriage. I love my $200 car. Don't you think about touching that. It's like, it's mine and I'm going to keep it for, for as long as I want. I mean, that'd be ridiculous, wouldn't it? It's going into a marriage going, I'm committing my whole self to this. Whatever's going to be best for us as a couple, for us as a family, for us as a future, sell the car, keep the car, whatever. It's now a part of the deal. When we say we're all in for God, isn't it ridiculous that we would go, hey, I'm all in for God, don't you touch my money. My money, I've worked hard for that. Doesn't make sense, does it? There is an old saying that, that when we go through the conversion experience, first it's we're converted in our head, then our hearts, and the last things to be converted is our wallets. Uh, that it's hard to give that up. We can agree with it our head, we can put our heart to it, but, but our money? Paul's saying out of this passage, no. Commit your whole self to God. God our Father has given his son for us, holding out on any part of our life doesn't make sense. The second thing is when you give in light of grace, God has given you what you couldn't ever get for yourself. See, often one of the things we do is clinging to our wealth and we feel uncomfortable about money. That's our security. That's our future. That's our identity. I'm not going to let go of that. But in fact, God has given you so much more than you could ever get. Through grace. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. He just gave it to you. To cling on to something else is saying to God, actually, I'm not sure whether I trust that. I want, I want this just as a backup. Live in light of grace. God is a generous and loving God. The third thing, when you live for Jesus' return, when you live for his kingdom, it's easier to hold on to things of this world loosely. See, often I think we forget about Jesus' return. We forget about him coming to take us home. And when we forget about that, all of a sudden, what's important to us is the here and now, what we can see. But actually, when we have a clear vision of, what, of Jesus returning, he's coming to take me home, coming to give me something so much better, so much greater. Actually, the things of this world, I can loosen my grip on. I'm not going to be possessive about that stuff. Because God's got something so much greater. And I have assurance in that. I have assurance of his return. So what we see here, this is not a budget issue, is it? It's actually not a money issue. It's something much greater. It's a heart issue. A heart issue. Have you handed yourself over to Jesus fully? to understand the full impact of the cross, that God's son would die, not just for other people, for you, for you to be welcomed in the kingdom. doesn't matter what you've done, where you've come from. Have you laid your sins upon the cross and realised that you have life? He's taken you from death to life. He's stolen you from hell and put you in heaven. Have you handed your sins over to him? But yet, how we use our money is a reflection of how we're going spiritually. And this is why Jesus talked about money a lot. 
That's why we can't keep it a secret. That's why it's good for us to talk about our giving, our money, our generosity with others, just like our other gifts and our other parts of the world. How are you going with your Bible reading? How are you going with your praying? How are you going with the sin in your life? How are you going with the way you handle your money? It's healthy for us because it's a heart issue, it's a salvation issue. To, to be rich in generosity is an act of responding to God's grace to us. It's not just for some Christians. It's not just for those rich people over there. It's for all of us to show where our hearts are. So we're going to do this exercise in our growth groups. So if you're part of a growth group, I want to give you the heads up from the front rather than turning up to growth group and surprise. Three weeks, in week two, next week, uh, well, in our growth groups for these three weeks, we're going to ask your group to split up in groups of threes, same gender, to talk about how we're going spiritually heart-wise and what that means with our money. That takes a lot of trust, takes a lot of vulnerability to actually come together and actually talk how are we going with this. Look each other in the eye to encourage, to build each up in this walk together. Week two, we're going to share some of those details with each other. So it's good to be a part of a growth group. It's good to be a part of building trust. But I want to share with you an experience that we had just in this last couple of weeks. We've been talking about this idea in our leadership team, our elders and our committee management. They deal with our money and finances. We say, how can we be asking our congregation to do something that us as leaders can't do? So this week, we had the conversation. This is why it's good for us. We looked at this passage. Uh, and our elders had an opportunity to share that with each other. This is my giving and this is how I come to that point. And I can share with you, that was the most freeing and liberating and binding experience. Uh, it's, it's right up there with one of our best meetings that we could share that with each other. You can come into that with fear and apprehension. But when you know you're in a safe place, that when you know it's not about honour or shame or pride, look how much I give, but it's actually about we're all wrestling with this. We're all on this journey and it's all a spiritual thing. It was fantastic. Community management's going to be doing it shortly. They didn't have the opportunity the other night. They'll be doing the same thing, share with each other. And I certainly hope they have the same experience. I hope you guys in your growth groups have the same experience in doing it. If you're not in a growth group, you're missing out. Talk to somebody about how you're going with your giving and be vulnerable there. I encourage you to participate in that if you're in growth groups. But I hope you can see it's because we all want to build each other up in our faith. We all want to point each other to that last day when Jesus returned. That when Jesus returns, we will have our feet standing firm. We will be have a tight grip on eternity, a tight grip on the grace through the cross and hanging, hanging loosely onto the things of this world. That's where we're going. If you have any problems with that, uh, talk to me, talk to one of the elders, get their version of that story and uh, how, how encouraging that time was to encourage you. Let me pray. Dear Father God, we just thank you for your amazing love to us that even though we didn't deserve life, we don't deserve your blessings, we don't deserve your compassion or your love, yet you would send your son to die for a bunch of sinners like us, that your love would make him hold out his hands on that cross to be pierced, for his blood to be shed. 
for us. Lord, let us cling tightly to the cross, to that message of grace. Let us cling tightly to the life you offer us, the freedom, the certainty of eternity with you. That we've been saved from the grips of hell. We've been saved from sin and death. And we have life in you. Lord, help us live for that, strive for that. And Lord, even when it comes to using our money, we say, no money. We're not going to live for you. We're not going to look for you for security because we've got someone much greater. And we hold loosely onto to things like money. Lord, you know our hearts. You know what we're wrestling with. Let us not be hiding. Let us not be hiding our idol. Let us not be hiding uh, behind excuses. Let us come before you, Lord. Let us trust in you like never before. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.